Support for this episode comes from Awesome Merch. Awesome Merch is the leading supplier of custom merchandise and print to the craft beer industry, with over 700 custom products made in-house. Awesome Merch understands how to take your brewery's branding and designs and turn them into a range of merch that you can use as an additional revenue stream, as well as building brand recognition with your fans. That's why Awesome Merchandise has been trusted by more than 100 craft breweries, both big and small, to bring your brand to life on t-shirts, hoodies, headwear, and so much more. Awesome Merch works with the likes of Northern Monk, Beaver Town, Magic Rock, Camden Town, as well as Leeds International Beer Festival and Indie Man Beer Con, to name just a few. To find out more about Awesome Merch, visit awesomemerchandise.com today or email beer at awesomemerchandise.com to speak to one of their friendly team. In 2005, Paul Halsey and James Mitkin established Purity out here in the beautiful Warwickshire countryside with the mission of brewing great beer without prejudice, with a conscience, and with a consistency and attention to detail which is second to none. Both felt that the UK beer industry needed a shakeup, so after quitting their jobs at a national brewery, Purity was born. From those early days of Paul, Jim, and Ubu the dog, Purity has grown rapidly to the team they have now. What you'll be able to take away from this podcast is that there's more than one way to succeed. Paul, welcome to the Brewers Journal Podcast. And for you, our listeners, I'm your host, Velo Mitrovich from Rebe Media. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Paul. Most craft brewers, they've started on the well-worn path, brewing at home for themselves, brewing for friends, brewing for people they were indifferent about, brewing for people they didn't like, and then going commercial. You've taken the opposite tech, going from big to small. What were and what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I think um, for Jim and myself, my, my business partner Jim was a, a fellow graduate of uh, Bass, at the time the biggest global brewer in the world. Um, and um, I, I think what I saw was a, an opportunity to create modern beer. What we see now is what we term craft, I suppose, but we saw it as what we call modern beer. Had a fantastic um, grounding, graduate scheme was superb, great learning and, and understood and training I had was, was first class. So understanding my background was sales and marketing. So I spent a long time in sales, running teams, uh, development teams and, and learning and working with customers. And I understood the market. So I looked after national one trade, wholesalers, I had all that training, um, which was great. I kind of fell out of love of it and realized um, square peg in a round hole. I was quite entrepreneurial, uh, quite cre creative kind of person. And I think when you work in a big company, although I really appreciated those six years of training and the graduate scheme was brilliant, um, I really need to go and work for myself and, and do, do things off my own back. So uh, before I set Purity up, I'd run pubs up in uh, Yorkshire and I'd been a sales director for a regional brewer as well, but again, working for a board, but again, realized I needed to work for myself. I think I'm unemployable, really. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, but my background and, and my understanding the market and roots of market in particular helped Purity. And, and seeing the good, the bad, and the ugly, I suppose, of, of what works and what doesn't in those organizations. I mean, in between, you had a, a restaurant, correct? Yeah. Restaurant pub? Yeah. And did that too also kind of uh, 
I don't know. Have you think more of the commercial aspects of beer or what you could do with it? Yeah, I think I understood I uh, very quickly. It was a, what we would call a modern pub that did amazing food. It was still a pub, but it did really good food, where I think everything's called gastro now or gastrified, which I think is a, a dirty word personally. Um, so it was a pub that did brilliant food. Uh, my background had been food as well and, and chefing. So I learned a lot from sitting on a sommeliers group for the north of England about New World wine and what New World had done for the wine industry, kicked it up the arse, consistency, quality, great branding, great price points, interesting price points. And I felt, why can't cast beer do this? And you go back 15 years ago, uh, cast beer was very traditional. It was pitched to a particular audience, which was male, over 50 mainly. And um, it didn't appeal to a younger audience and didn't particularly appeal to females at all. When you were thinking then about starting off on your own, did you look at any other breweries and think, well, that, that's a good example to follow or that's, that's actually a horrible example to follow? Absolutely. So there were three, uh, and I'll quote the examples, and they're very traditional brewers, but what they did, they did really well. And they focused on building brands. And I think that's one thing I learned working at Bass is how to build a brand and how to seed it and how to get the route to market correct. Craft beer or the market that we see now didn't really exist um, at the time. There was us and Formbridge at the time that started off 14 years ago. I think there's about three months difference between both of us. Um, but the, 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 there was two brewers, Timmy Taylor's. I, I really respected them, what they did in terms of how they protected their quality, their consistency, and their price. You know, it's premium. You pay for quality. Black Sheep were another brewery I looked at going back 15, 20 years, how they built a brand around just Black Sheep Bitter. They didn't have any other beers. That's what they built. There's obviously different versions of that now. And then uh, latterly more Bookcomb down in the southwest. They just had Bookcomb Bitter and they built a brand up just around one beer. So when we started, it was very much building our beer around two beers, which was pure gold and ubu and creating a brand and personality around that. There was um, some years back uh, when I was on the fishing side, I was in Brazil and I was talking to a shrimp farmer and he said, uh, he said anybody could grow shrimp. He said, it's, you know, it's not rocket science, but not everybody could sell shrimp. I mean, would you agree with that, that a lot of the brewers, they seem to fall flat on the marketing side, which you seem to, with purity, to come very strong on with? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think you said at the start that there's a lot of um, home brewers or disenfranchised brewers out of the bigger brewers that have come in to set their own brewery up. But actually, they don't understand the route to market. They don't understand their customer base. They're passionate about creating fantastic creative beer. And I think particularly what we're seeing now in the craft beer market, there's a resurgence for people like that coming into the market and creating the weird and wonderfuls. And there's a bit of latitude around it in terms of quality and consistency as well. But yeah, I, I, I think absolutely. There's a lot of people that have got great ideas and can brew beer or you know, shrimps, <laughs> farm shrimps, but actually getting them to the customer is a different kettle of fish and getting that beer in the hand of the customers and keeping it in the hand and then they order week in, week out is really key. We had some breweries like... Uh stones in san diego who basically said that we're making the beer today that you should be drinking that uh that it's almost like they took they let the brewers create what the brewers thought was good beer and if the customers drank it well you know good for the company and then you have other breweries that seem to take the complete opposite tack that the only thing they do is uh 
you know, they look at the commercial side. Is this going to sell? And that's the only question they have. Are you somewhere in the middle? Yeah, between? firmly in the middle. Absolutely. And, and it's about getting that balance right. I think you have to have commercial, commerciality in a brand, but you also have to understand the consumer. So there's a real balance there. And I think brewing beers that are creative, interesting, that the brewers want to do, there's an audience out there, but it's quite a narrow audience. And we're at a scale now where there's a broader audience that want to drink great consistency, great quality modern beer, as we call it. So I think we firmly sit in that middle between commerciality and, and, and the quality beer, but, and, and uh, what we call modern beer. When Purity started out, you had just the two Castells, Pure Gold and Pure Ubu. Your portfolio has now grown. You have Mad Goose, Saddle Black. Uh, Longhorn IPA, Lawless Lager, and a couple of others. You even have a cider. Um, but unlike some like Cloudwater, your beers, they're pretty traditional. Is this based on your own tastes or you're experiencing uh, from establishing and owning a restaurant pub? Yeah, I'm 57. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think it's coming back to that, the question you just asked before about where do you sit? And I think there's a we sit between that what the consumer wants and the commerciality as well and i think there's a there's a big market in that mid-ground you know it's not all about niche craft because that's a relatively small market i know it's in high growth but like i said if we see ourselves as not traditional we see ourselves as modern and and play the system so for instance a lot of our new beers are gluten-free vegan friendly you know, hazy, we're understanding the market. And, that you know, if we went to the market with a hazy beer eight years ago, they'd send it back over the bar. They wouldn't be interested. Gluten-free, vegan, you know, I've run bars and restaurants. There's water and there's fruit juice if you want that, or cider, you know. Or you, you, you kicked out the, the entrance of the door if you want, you know, vegan or vegetarian. It, it's big. It's really big now. And, you know, I only look at my children, my, my kids, and, you know, one's vegan, you know, the other's really into his healthy eating. Yeah, so, so you've got to understand the market where it's going. And I think we've grown with the market and start to understand the market and have adapted. And yes, you might say traditional, but we see it as modern. You know, our cask beer is 50% of our, our total volume is cask. Uh, but, you know, 25, 25, 30% is keg, and that's growing really rapidly. The other 20% is packaged. But my passion, an answer to your question, mm. I love cast beer. I'm passionate about cast beer. To me, it's the best drink you can have when it's on form. I was recently in Jerusalem, and I was visiting a Shapiro brewery in Jerusalem, as, as people do. And, uh, and I was talking to the, to the lads there who run it, and uh, they were telling me about their expansions. And they were one of the groups that started, you know, in their... Well, they didn't have a basement, I guess in a back bedroom or something. And then they said when they had their first big expansion, they thought, that's it. We're on easy street now. We're never, ever, ever going to have to expand again now. We're just going to sit back and watch some money come in. And, you know, the, Jesus, you know, now they're looking at, I think, their fourth expansion coming up. How many times have you expanded? We expand every year, I think. But, um, you know, we, we've grown from, like say, two men and a dog and then Flo joined the year after three men and a dog and then there's 43 of us now so we, we've grown from uh, nothing to uh, just over 10 million pound business and, and brewing 
nearly 30,000 barrels of beer. So the, the big game changer for us was uh, five, six years back when we we're at capacity in our current brew house, which is brewed cast beer. So it was just Mad, Go- Mad Goose, Golden Ubu. That's all we could brew. We couldn't brew anymore at complete capacity. It was then, do we then invest into a new brew house? And then if we make that investment, we really need to put our foot on the accelerator and, and grow our market. We made that decision, so we invested nearly circa two million in a Browcon brew house, and um, that enabled us to go into keg because before our brew kit was just a mash, hot pack, yeah, kettle, and, and it was just cast beer and, and bottle. That enabled us then to go into keg and into can and do cask as well. So, you know, the big game changer was five, six years back when we decided to make that big investment, but every year. We've had to reinvest, put a canning line in, other investments in, into more warehousing. It, it doesn't stop. You know, the dream, is it bigger than we probably thought? Absolutely. But, you know, you don't stop. The, the, the market is still growing for us. You know, we, we're currently nearly 14% up against last year as well, which is in a tough marketplace. My, uh, my first wife was one of 13 kids. And uh, when we were talking about the size we wanted our family to be, I said small. And she said, and I only have a brother. And she said, oh, yeah, definitely small. And then she said, yeah, maybe five or six kids, which, of course, to me, you know, I then ended up on my back. I was like, yeah, what? You know, after working at Bass and seeing Bass, I mean, do you, do you kind of see yourself headed towards midsize brewing thinking well actually this is this is still kind of small compared to bass i I think in terms of the numbers probably tell you where we're heading in in terms of the barrelage and the turnover and if we carry on that growth rate over the next two years you know we'll be at thirty-five thousand, forty thousand barrels in the next two or three years it's more about our values and how we are as people and how we act um, as a company so i'm not saying uh, anything wrong at Bass I really enjoyed my time a fantastic business and, and a lot of learnings out of it but we are still a family business although we're not family owned we have the same values we care we care about our customers and I'm not saying they don't care but yeah we we are big I suppose in terms of our numbers but actually our kind of how we are within internally is, is small and we care and our values and you know, as long as I'm at the helm that's how we're going to carry on with your protection, is it mostly keg or is it bottle cans? Or? Yeah, so in, in terms of cask is 50% of our volume. Um, so that's about 15,000 barrels. And then we're about 8,000 barrels of keg and the rest is packaged. So that'll be a mixture, mainly bottle and then some can and then some mini casks and polypins and some other, yeah. Do you see... Either of those outgrowing the other? or Yeah, so I think, you know, the, the fact is that we feel as a category cask can carry on growing for us, um, purely based on quality and the consistency of our beer and the styles of beer that we're doing. So we've just recently put Longhorn Keg, an IPA, into cask. That's gone really, really well for us. The Kavik, uh, this, this beer you're going to try later, the Norwegian yeast, we're looking to put in the cask as well. And we're just, um, the Bunny Hop, which is 3.5, we're doing that now as a hazy, vegan-friendly beer, which we're just going to trial. So we're going to have a nice portfolio of cast beer, but we, we feel we can still grow that. Keg's the biggest growth. So us launching Lager, uh, Lawless, 
Unfiltered and winning the World Beer Awards with that. And then uh, just recently, we're launching Hellas into organic and vegan friendly as well, which is a 5% uh, classic pure Hellas. Um, we see that as a big growth. We've launched Session IPA in can, keg and can, uh, vegan and gluten-free as well. That, that's That's been our biggest volume growth in London. You talk to some of the breweries, especially the smaller guys, and uh, you know they live for their tap room. If it wasn't for the tap room, they all said they'd be out of business. I'm taking a wild guess here because you are kind of in the middle of nowhere. Um, your tap room probably doesn't bring in a lot of business, or does it? No. We <laughs> yes and no. I mean, two weeks before Christmas, we, we do nearly twenty thousand pounds worth of business in the shop. You know, people want to come to the brewery. There's a romanticism about coming here to buy the beer fresh, which is fantastic. In the summer, from May through to September, every two weeks, we we have cyclists come up here. We have a mad goose chase, and we have a hundred cyclists here. And so we have a tap room. We have burgers on. And then we do brewery tours, Saturday, two brewery tours, and then we have an event in the week. So although we don't have a, a bar, official tap room here, um, yeah, we have a quite high throughput of customers that come here and engage with us. Um, we have a bar in Birmingham as well called Pure Craft Bar and Kitchen. So that's our adopted tap room. I was, I was going to ask you about that. Is, it, is that directly part of you or is that attached it's, to yeah, you? it's attached to us. So we own a percentage of it and I personally own a percentage of it as well. And some of us minority investors in there. But it has our complete range of all our cask, all our keg and all our friends and partners. So we've worked, I've worked for 15 years with Meissels from Germany. I've worked with Veltons from Germany for 15 years. So they're featured there. And then we work with likes of Kirkstall, Five Points and... Uh, roosters and yeah we have a nice range of of, of beers there as well and that's located what's in birmingham in birmingham and Colm- just off colmore row yeah in, right in the center near the station i mean do you see yourself doing more of those yeah i'd like we'd like to do more yeah so we're looking at how we do that and investments and who's going to run it <laughs> yeah. I, I can get away running this and and dabbling in that at the moment but i think we've got a two or three we need someone else that's mm. going to help us do that yeah. you're uh you, you really push sustainability and you know talking to the guys that work here you know they all they talk about well they talk about two things they talk about your uh, obsession with cleanliness <laughs> and even going down to the desk level and then uh, <laughs> but they say it in a nice way they don't they don't say it meanly and uh, and the other thing is the sustainability hand on heart if consumers and customers all wrote to you and said, you know what, Paul, you know, we could give a toss about uh, sustainability. We, we, you know, really, we just don't care. Would you still do it? Yeah, absolutely. I'm passionate about it, and Jim is. So, you know, honestly, um, in terms of, yeah, I do. I suffer from OCD and my cleanliness, and, and that <laughs> permeates throughout the whole business. And I, I don't apologize for it. That's how I am. But everyone knows what I'm like. Um, in terms of when we set up, it was, could have we gone on an industrial site and had a bigger and better and a more kind of sensible flow for a business? Absolutely. And with the ability to grow there, could we have done sustainability and wetlands? No, we couldn't. This was all about regeneration, about sustainability. Uh, and it permeates throughout our whole business from spent grain, spent hops, yeast. It's all, all, all recycled, all the, all, all, all the effluent recycled. All, can, that, all that glass, all that plastic, everything. Could you explain the water recycling that's, that goes on? Because, I mean, you definitely, 
you know, you go for a little walk and you could you could smell, but you could see the succession of uh, you can smell uh, it. <laughs> yeah, you can smell. <laughs> <laughs> um, could you explain that? Yeah. So um, once we found the right farm, <laughs> so it had to be a rural location. So we're fortunate here that the farm is a 400-acre farm that historically was a livestock farm. Granville, the farmer, then moved everything into arable. So he had a lot of buildings, outbuildings that weren't used. So where historically sheep, cattle, milking sheds would have been in. So we had the potential to grow and set up here, just uh, use. So in terms of diversification, the support of DEFRA, we did it. The important thing for us here, we had mains water. So seven Trent water coming, but we had no mains effluent. So when you create beer, there's a lot of uh, wastage in terms of water, effluent, in terms of cleaning, uh, steam and everything, yeast, everything has to go away, chemicals go down. We could put a tanker out the back and we could take it to a sewage farm, which is just down the road. It's not very environment friendly and um, it's costly. Fortunately for us, we've got land out the back here and over four acres. Um, and through a help and a consultant called Dr. Rick Hudson, who had developed the Oxfordshire service station. So if you go to Oxford services, you'll no, notice loads of pools and wetlands out there. He developed that, so they've got no uh, main sewage. It all goes through into a, a kind of wetland system. He'd never done a brewery, so he came here, kind of took us through how it would work in terms of settling pool, anaerobic pools, oxidization pools, rebeds, and eventually it goes through all these different courses, and it would go out as pure water eventually into the river course. We loved it. Uh, we went back to DEFRA. They said they would support part of it in terms of a grant. The farmer was into doing it as well, so it was important. So apart from doing our bit in terms of it's commercially sensible because it saves us cost of discharging into a sewage, main sewage, which is costly, the cost was to build it, to start the, the upfront cost and plus an annual servicing cost. But it's now also a haven for wildlife. So we've got wildflowers, wild, wild, birds, animals out there. So, yeah, it's just something we're passionate. We're fortunate our location enables us to do it. With regular beer for, um, and you got to excuse me, I, I will never get my head around liters. I'm, I'm, I'm a gallon kind of guy, but for, for, for every one gallon of beer, you use something like eight gallons of water. But rumor has it, you have it down to a whole lot less than that. Yeah, so uh, for a pint, about two and a quarter, two and three quarters. So yeah, two and a quarter pints, two and a half pints. How did you do that? Through through the wetland system. And you, when you go up to see Flo, Flo will take you through the Browcom brew house. So through kind of the kind of... The brewing process, we'd be able to recycle a lot of the steam back into the in, into the brewing process. So a flow will take you through all that when you when you go up there. Flow is the brewmaster that uh, yeah that we're talking about. Um, you've had a pretty jam packed what fourteen years now? Fifteen? Fourteen in October. Fourteen? Yeah. I mean, what do you see the next fourteen like? <laughs> <laughs> I won't be here in 14 years. <laughs> I, hopefully I'll be on the planet in 14 years. But yeah. oh, I, I want to carry on growing at the same rate, with the same value, values, the same people, the same fantastic staff. Growing our footprint, we've just recently opened up uh, the north of England, so we're now going direct into uh, South Yorkshire, Manchester and Liverpool. 
we recently set up going into London. London's going to be a million pounds worth of direct business for us next year in free trade. So in growing our footprint in terms of geographical footprint, doing some more export, a bit like what you said before, doing more retail, so looking at a few more bars, bringing new products to the market, more gluten-free, vegan-friendly, just interesting. We're not about throwing beers at the wall to see what sticks. This is about understanding the market, understanding the consumers. We all know one in three, between 16 and 24-year-olds are teetotal now, more health-conscious, drinking less. So we have to create beers that are drinkable, but also that the market wants. So we're looking at the low and no alcohol market. We're looking, obviously, launching gluten-free and vegan-friendly. So, you know, for me, my, my is making sure I guide this business through for the next three to five years. And then I'll be 60 and I'll have to make a decision where I want to be. Mm. If, you know, looking back, what do you wish you knew back then that you know now? I, I, there's nothing... I think I've been fortunate with the job roles I've had and the businesses I've run. I've been, you know, some senior positions in there and I learned a lot. The thing that they can't teach you is how to, certainly when you scale a team up, is running a team of 50 people and, and managing that. And yeah, that, that's been sometimes challenging, but also uh, interesting. And um, yeah, just get, the big thing for me is just getting good quality people around you. Just the quality, get the quality people around you. I was going to ask you that because it seems like people they, they you know they have this vision in their head. I'm going to, I'm going to be making beer. That's what I'm going to be doing. But the reality is, no, you're not. You're going to be running a business. You're going to be personnel is going to take up probably a good portion of all your time trying yeah. to build a team, keeping harmony in the team, seeing you know if there's any weak links, seeing who the strong people are, who could you move up, move down. Do you think a lot of people kind of lose sight of that? That they they don't realize how much time is going to be spent on personnel? 100%. So you, think you, 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 you kind of view it with rose-tinted glasses, I think. And I think most of these kind of homebrewers that go into it do, they're just passionate about beer and want to knock out that most amazing beer, which is great. You know, the reality is you scale your business, you've got cash flow, you've got credit control, you've got HR, you've got all these things you've got to think about. Uh, you've got to keep the bank happy, you've got to keep your team happy. So, yeah, I mean, um, I see myself now as although I'm passionate about sales and marketing and beer, as a conductor of the orchestra. And, you know, that's what I have to spend a lot of my time on, making sure everything's working and efficient and fluid and, yeah. With the uh, small guys that are just starting out, I mean, what do you wish you could tell them? <laughs> <laughs> Don't do it. Don't do it. Uh, yeah, no. I, I, honestly... If, if you rolled it back 15 years ago, would I do this now? No, I probably wouldn't. I think where the market's going, it, I think it would be tough. I, um, I think some of them trying to think big before they've got, got through that, that kind of small and medium scale. And um, I think you know, you, you, we've all seen these, these sales of businesses in the last, few, last, last year and everybody's probably thinking of money. How can I make money out of it? I, that's not going to carry on. We've seen recently to crowdfund uh, businesses go pop. And I think we're gonna see more uh, collateral damage in this industry uh, with a declining market and shrinking and, and the, the fittest and the best will survive for sure. Paul, I'd like to thank you and your team for hosting us today. I'd like to thank my uh, sound assistant, Suzanne Freed, sound engineer, John Young, Brewer's Journal editor, Tim Sheehan, Pedal the Puck, who's kept us all on track, 
A thanks to our sponsors and a huge thanks to you, my brewing compadres. The, I've got to look over to Tim at this point. Tim, the next Brewers Lectures will be 25th of July in, in Glasgow and then in October, Bristol. And then in November will be the Brewers Congress, which will be in London. Thank you all for listening. Thank you.